Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David and we'll be the NCP crew. Richo. I'm back everybody. Uh, did you miss me? I know you did. Nice. Are you gone? <laughs> <laughs> we just we just propped up a teddy bear there and just assumed it was you. Uh, probably still would have been the best part of the show. <laughs> it was still cute. Alright. <laughs> Luke. Yes, I'm here. And Crystal. Sorry, I didn't think of anything to say. Hello, everybody, I'm here. <laughs> we are indeed all here. That's my line. You're still in my line. That's my line. I want it back. Luke, Get we, your own line. We are here. Yes, but I said it first. <laughs> You're both nutbags. Uh, for this episode, we have two dust jackets and our top five 70s TV shows. No real correlation between those two subjects, but Crystal picked that particular that top five. It's like I reached into a hat and pulled it out. <laughs> no. Oh, no, no. Uh, Roadside Picnic was written in this and published in the 70s. I don't oh, know. there you go. See, there's our, strenu- uh, our tenuous connection. Three of the four of us were born in the 70s. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Anyway, moving on. That's right, just to make you all feel off. Let's get ball rolling with uh, Dust Jacket number one, which will be Richo and Luke uh, reviewing Roadside Picnic. And uh, wait for it. Wait for me to mangle it. Boris Strigaski and Arkady Strigaski. Alright! Yes. I did it! I got high the, high I, five! I got the thumbs, the thumbs up for approval and the high five. I've done alright. So, uh, take it away, Richard. Uh, Roadside Picnic is a Russian science fiction novel. That's right, because we're, we're international now here at Dust Jacket. A Russian this, this science fiction This is not our first no- Russian novel. That was Master and Margarita. It was indeed. But, you the know, brilliance just, that just, is Margarita. Just trying to make it kind yeah. of interesting. Okay, it's like, hey everybody, Russian novels. <laughs> um, but this is Russian science fiction. I've never done one of those before. Oh, okay. All right. Yes, Roadside Picnic, Russian science fiction novel written by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky. Um, it was originally published in 1971, but interestingly, it was only published in uh, magazines in Russia. The book was actually banned for several years, but not because of any subversiveness or anything, just because it was really, really bleak. Which makes me wonder, because, you know, a lot of the Russian literature over it is actually incredibly bleak, so I'm not quite sure why they banned this one. But anyway. Um, too bleak for Russia. That's right, it was even too bleak for Russia. Um, I think because they were looking to publish it um, almost like a, as, a, as a teen novel, and they thought it might be a bit too bleak for teenagers. Or... Yeah. Really? <laughs> Yeah. They market it as a, as a young adult novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's hilarious. And because of that, it was banned. It was actually published um, in other countries, yeah. but not in Russia. As young adult novels? I don't really know. I guess probably just as science fiction novels, but... And yet now we have The Hunger Games. That's right. <laughs> Pretty bleak. What about um, Lord of the Flies? That was very bleak. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but this is Russia. The classic. I don't know. Maybe maybe those books were banned in Russia as now, well. Now, Lord of the Flies would have been a school manual. Here's how to do it. <laughs> well, I hope uh, You're a racist. <laughs> well, now that we've alienated any potential <laughs> Russian listeners, um, Roadside Picnic also rates number eighty-seven on Sci-Fi List's top one hundred science fiction novels of all time. Number eighty-seven. So, if you had eighty-seven, you are the winner. <laughs> <laughs> we should start doing that. We should start saying. Guess what, what number this... Oh, can I just look it up? They can just look it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah that would really work. It was still funny. Yeah. Uh, the World of Roadside Picnic. Um, it's actually... The story is set 30 years after... I guess 
uh, uh, contact with a um, extraterrestrial race has actually come to Earth, and in multiple areas around the planet, they've landed, stayed for two days, and left again. Uh, without actually really communicating or even acknowledging that humanity exists. But um, the areas where they landed um, have now been uh, fenced off into zones, protected zones, partially because they're incredibly dangerous. There's all kinds of weird, like, biological matter left over and strange uh, weather patterns and things like that that make it a bit of a death trap. But also because artefacts have been left within these zones, just basically scattered around the zones. Um, and, yeah, so they're sort of trying to keep those out of the hands of the wrong people. However, there are characters called stalkers, and stalkers are basically like smugglers. They sneak into the zones, they steal the artefacts, they bring them out, and they sell them on the black market. Our main character is Redrick Schuhart, uh, known as Red. Uh, he is a stalker, a very experienced stalker, who, at the beginning of the novel, has actually kind of moved away from stalking, but certain events occur that lead him back into that field, and um, especially something in relation to his daughter, which I won't go into a great deal of detail about, but basically he, he the thrust of the story is that he actually needs to go back into uh, the zone, his zone, uh, one final time for a very specific mission, which I won't also won't spoil the details of. First thing I found when reading Roadside Picnic that is that although it's only 145 pages long, it's actually a bit of a hard slog. Um, it's bleak. Well, it's not just that, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure whether it's the nature of the writing or perhaps the nature of the translation, because obviously it was originally written in Russian, but I just found it slow going in reading this book. Um, it... It doesn't help, I, th I think, that the book starts off fairly slow. In fact, for, for me, the most interesting part of the novel is actually the last probably 30 or 40 pages. Red's actual trip back into the zone, I think, is the really fascinating part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, there are a little, a few little sidetrack moments happen along the way. Um, other, we focus on other characters in certain sections of the book. Um, and so you kind of lose sight of Red a couple of times, but it, it's still really Red's story, and uh, we, we focus on him uh, for most of it through about 10 years of his life. But yeah, th those moments where it, it distracts away from him are uh, the moments where I kind of found myself losing interest a little bit in the novel. Uh, but whenever we came back to Red and Red's plight, for me, that was probably the best part of, of this book. The way, one of the ways you really got to think about this is... You know, take a story like take a story like Rendezvous with Rama, which is all about us discovering the big what 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 is now called you know the big dumb object, um, which is you know the thing in space or the you know the thing on Earth that, that's unknown to us that we've got to go and explore. Yeah. For the most part, this novel is actually the discussion that happen, happens around all that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, they do go into the zone, um, and you see a little bit there, but it's more about people talking about the zone and the way that the zone has affected the wider culture. For instance, the stalkers are actually, for the most part, they're illegal. And it's more about their interactions with the police um, outside of um, doing a you know, typical stalk and, how, you know, how that can affect them. And then, you know, the getting the contraband around to various um, 
or the objects that they find within the zone around to the various um, uh, people that they're trying to sell it off to, but then also um, lengthy discussions about what the zone might be, what why did the aliens come here? So it's all more about the um, yeah the effects of the the zone being there on the wider society. Having said that, you can still do that and still make it an interesting story. And my big problem with this is that um, you know there are some interesting ideas about why the zone is there. But there really isn't much of a plot. Uh, Red, um, for the most part, you know, he gets a couple of moments where he is affected by his experiences, particularly at the start, he, after a particularly harrowing encounter in the zone. You know, he's sitting having a shower, and he actually does, um, he does burst into tears, and is affected by, you know, the continual presence of the zone. But um, apart from that, he's got no real logline. I'm not asking for a specific quest, yeah. but some some reason for him to be. And it really doesn't come until the last um, section of the novel, yeah. um, where Red decides where, where there is you know something they've got to go after, which is the Golden Sphere. And I kind of have a bit of a problem with that because that's that last section really should be the rest of the novel, yeah. the entire novel. There is some sort of interesting world building here and there within this book. Um, probably not a great example of it. Certainly not say along the likes of say Dune or. Um, foundation what the writers do establish i think in a rather interesting way is the actual black market setup for everything there is kind of hinted that really what's what's driving this black market is the military industrial complex um as well as certain private corporations who are trying to get their hands on this technology and you assume reverse engineer it and there's one point in the book where there's quite a disastrous results from that sort of thing. Um, and that's a certainly an interesting part of all of this. And the stalkers themselves I find fascinating and the, the whole setup with the stalkers. Um, there's also some rather interesting side effects of being sort of in the zone, um, especially born within the zone. Um, it's discussed at one point that um, people born within the area's Oh, that we're living in the areas where where the zones when the zones first occurred when the aliens first landed were almost like jinxed I suppose like things that happened to them later when they when they actually try to emigrate out of the zone areas because the zone areas become basically dumps holes and they, they try to emigrate out of those and that actually results in um, disasters occurring and depending on how long they've lived there and how many people move into another area it depends on the nature of the disaster and I thought that was kind of fascinating. The problem is, I think, though, that a lot of that is just told to you. There's a lot of exposition in this book, um, which brings me, I guess, back around to those last 40 pages where the exposition dies away and you actually really get into Red actually getting out there and doing something. For me, like I said, that, that was, I think, the best part of it. And unfortunately, there is too much explaining of what of what's going on in the zone and with but it's interesting because they're they're telling you too much about it without showing you but at the same time there's no real explanations for why the zone is the way it is why the aliens came in the first place there's some hypotheses um but that's really about it so they they're in in one respect they're explaining too much without actually really explaining anything um the reasoning behind anything but they are telling you a lot of stuff the other, what, the, what this thing really feels like also is that it feels like a collection, really what should have been a good idea for an anthology of short stories. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, exactly. Um, because one of the things in the edition that I've got, it has an afterword where Boris Stradsky talks about him and Arcady coming up with the idea of one, one of their many walks and what they do is they, you know, they talk about 
the idea of, you know, the zone and, you know, isn't cool, wouldn't it be cool to have all this thing that people go and have an adventures in? And it sounded, it did sound kind of interesting, but the, what the thing that they talked about actually is not there in the novel. Like I said, it's more about the ordinary men being affected by their experiences in the zone and how that affects their everyday lives. And, it thought, and, it, and it's not a sufficiently interesting enough for a, a novel. Whereas an idea of short, uh, an anthology of short stories, where you can focus on different characters and on different characters' experiences, both in and out of the zone, could actually would actually probably be a lot better. And you could have sold it because short stories actually still do sell on the science fiction market. Yeah. So I think that's really what this should have been. Um, whereas the story that they did give us, um, it's not not particularly engaging. You know, aside from an emotional reaction at the start, I didn't really care about what was going on with the characters. And really wanted a lot more. First of all, a lot more invention, mm. and a lot more interesting stuff to happen. I mean, it doesn't help that we've had stories like this um, previously. So a lot of, and you know, that's my perception coming into it. Um, but for the most part, just a sense of I really don't care. Uh, you know, the the you can read an anti-Soviet thing into this, of course, but um, it sort of feels like. Outside of that, there's really nothing else going on within the novel that um, is of particular interest. Tarkovsky made the film uh, Stalker in 1979, which is based on the on the novel, but it actually does it is all about one long experience in the zone. Yeah. The problem that the film has is that it's very drab and very dour. It, yeah. It, it, it feels like in both cases, one of the thi- one of the things that does stand out about Roadside Picnic is um, there is a, sen- uh, a dark sense of humour running through it. They do have, you know, they do pick on each other. They do throw insults back and forward. It's uh, pranks and stuff. Not, not quite pranks, but more um, civic wit yeah. than anything else. Okay. And Stalker's very, um, very dour and very, you know, depre- and very <laughs> dour and very depressing. Uh, you know, in all, in all other words, a typical Tarkovsky film. And sort of a melding of the two might have actually created for a richer story in both cases, I think. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the film. Really I'm not a fan of the film. Either I right? do it for it's me. not um it's not like I said a lack of invention in both in yeah. both cases really doesn't um I'm a fan of the, the game you played the game no stalker it's awesome but see that but see that makes sense because that's all about you going and exploring and that's the yeah. other thing I wanted exploring yeah you know that's why that's why I think where where it should have shifted out is it just focus it focuses on the wrong, on the wrong sort of thing I think it should have been it's, they should have just gone the whole hog and made it an adventure novel. Mm. Going into the zone, all the wacky things that they see and have to experience, and all that sort of stuff. But see, that's also like I said, that story is like Rendezvous with Rama, and yeah. like, and I kind of understand if you wanted to do something a little bit away from that, but you can still do the talking around the big dumb object and without needing to go into it and still make it interesting. Yeah, like it's not an awful novel. Um, I give this two looks. Look, I think that's probably a little bit too harsh. I'm going to go a bit higher and give this book two and a half. It's there's some interesting ideas there, but I don't think it's it, it sort of pans out as a fully realised novel. So, yeah, two and a half weeks. Uh, so let's move on to our second Dust Jacket, which will be uh, Crystal and myself. And we'll be reviewing what was my pick, which was The Diamond Throne, which is book one of the Elenium trilogy by David and Lee Eddings. Cheekily took advantage of the fact that... Uh, neither Luke or Richard were doing <laughs> the book with me so I, I threw in a fantasy novel um, it's, and just and just as an aside I did mention I've mentioned on a no, numerous occasions that I wanted to do Orion Ben Bovis Orion at mm. some point and this was originally going to be the book 
And uh, but I, I read the last time I read Orion was when I was you know substantially younger than I am today, and uh, and I just remember loving it. And I, we, I started reading it. I got about twenty pages in, and I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> this is unreadable. Can I just jump forward something yeah. there? Because I started to read Orion on your recommendation about ten years ago, oh, yeah. and I picked it up. Going, I can kind of see why he kind of likes the character. But seriously, <laughs> it's just it's it's so bad just when it first starts off. It does. It, I mean, I just, in its defense, it does get a lot better later on. Uh, but oh my god, I just couldn't do it. And then I was just like, I just know Crystal's going to be bored out of her brain reading this. So, well, that's uh, appreciated. I did yeah. pick it up with the intention I'll of reading it, but uh, when you said you'd changed your mind, I hadn't started <laughs> at that point. So I was like, all right. <laughs> so so I went with uh, I, I went with the Diamond Throne. Um, now I just I just I need to point out that I am an absolutely massive David Eddings fan. I mean, David Eddings. Uh, it was pr- it was pretty much my introduction to the world of fantasy, uh, and but I'm not that big a fan that I didn't actually know that he was in fact dead, uh, it's, it's, which is quite surprising. I, I only just in researching some a bit of backstory for this for this book, I discovered that he, is, he has in fact passed away. I, hmm. I, I knew I knew his wife Leah was, hmm. but he actually passed away in 2009, and I, and I didn't know. And it's and I'm actually I'm kind of ashamed by that because. Uh, I mean, I could tell you the, the, the date and time that uh, David Gemmell died, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's, I feel kind of bad about it. But, and another thing, another thing that sort of brings up is because I was actually thinking, because uh, David Eddings has, has written a, a, bunch of, a bunch of fantasy novels, um, one after the other, and his last series was called The Dreamers, and it's not good. I mean, I, I'm trying to be kind, but it really is quite bad. And I, rem- I, I basically couldn't get through uh, the, second, the second book of the series, and there's four books in the series, and... And I do remember thinking, you know, mate, it's not too late. Maybe he'll, you know, it's, it's all right. Because the first bunch of series he's done are all brilliant. So maybe it's, you know, this is maybe he's just hit a hard patch and, and, you know, he'll come back with some more brilliance and stuff like that. It's all right. I'll wait for, I'll wait for the next batch. And uh, there was no next batch because uh, he unfortunately passed on at the end of that. So. There's always ghostwriting. Yeah, I guess that's true. The lost yeah. manuscripts that they the lost, flesh yeah. out. There was, well, there actually, yeah. his uh, brother-in-law was saying that there was a manuscript. Um, so anyway, so, so uh, that being said, uh, David Eames, um, like I said, was sort of basically my introduction to fantasy. Uh, I read his stuff before I read Lord of the Rings. Uh, so I read uh, his first series, The Balgariad, uh, and its sequel, uh, The Malorian, uh, before I'd even touched any Tolkien. And it's funny because the only reason David Eddings, uh wrote those novels was is, was in direct relation to his dislike of Tolkien's <laughs> no, Tolkien's, Tolkien's stories. It's true. Uh, he like he, he was in a library and uh, yeah. So he goes and tells one of the most Tolkien Tolkienian fables. It basically owes everything everything to it. No, it's it's. I wouldn't say ripped him off. But it's it is. But the Balgarad is essentially a is a textbook case of the hero's journey. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It basically ticks. It's like he had a list on his wall. Of the hero's journey and what what it is, you know, he's basically he's read Joseph Campbell's hero journey, and he's got a tick box because mm-hmm. because the Belgarian covers every single one of those, and that's not I'm not trying to pick on it by saying that. I mean, I I absolutely adore the Belgarian for all its faults. There's a reason why I the hero's it. journey works. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Anyway, but the story goes. I, I mean, I don't know how factual this is, but the story goes that he was in a library or something or a bookstore, I think, and there was a copy of the Lord you know, Lord of the Rings, the first book, and uh, and uh, he took it off the shelf and he's like, oh, surely, you know, it's like this old turkey. Or something to that effect, and uh, you know, this is this is still. And he, had, he was and he was shocked to discover that it was not only still around, but it was still in print, and it was it's like a six hundredth printing or something. Mm. And uh, and he was just like, oh my god, this how could this turkey be still in print? 
And so he then went on to write, you know, the Bogart and the Malorian, which, as you say, is, you know, it owes everything. <laughs> Michael Moorcock, who was also not a huge, who also despises Lord of the Rings, actually went and ripped off Robert Howard instead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm trying to, I'm trying not to stand too negative. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I do, I love. I, just, I can't tell you, I've read the Belgariad so many times that I actually got picked on by one of my teachers because of it. Like, one of my teachers actually said, you've got to stop reading the same book over and over and over again and expand your mind and actually read some other stuff. You know what I mean? We're tired of you hiring this book out of the library, but <laughs> borrowing this book all the time. You know, please, for, the, for your own, you know, mental development, read something else. I then moved on to the Sweet Valley High novels, but <laughs> which she wasn't too pleased about. I, I laughed, but I did read those at the same time as well. <laughs> and then, but then after Sweet Valley High, I moved on to the Doctor Who novels, and you know, and then my book reading went as, as, as the way it is, and then there's a sci-fi and all that sort of stuff. So I am the man that I am today because of that. But but uh, so the bigger and the more, and I've just I've read to death. I own my own copies. I've owned multiple copies of them that I've read them so much that they basically they fall apart. He then, after the after those series, he moved on to the Elenium and its sequel, uh, the Tamuli. Uh, now, the reason I decided to go with the Elenium uh, book one is because uh, a I didn't want Crystal to have to read all three books, even though I quite happily would have. In fact, after I finished this, I moved straight on to book two. <laughs> just couldn't help myself. Um, and, and, and also, but also because I actually, as much as I love the Belgariad, um, it I actually think this is a superior book. I basically think that the Belgaria and the Malorian... The Malorian, let's face it, is essentially just the Belgariad again. Um, it's just, you know, we don't... And, and I was fine with that. At the, and I can see it is for what it is. It's because I love those characters so much that any excuse to have another adventure with them was is fine with me. So I was willing to let go of the fact that it is essentially the same story. And But actually, I sort of see the Belgaria as sort of... It, because it, it was so much a response to, to Lord of the Rings and it's, it was his first fantasy novel that as much as I love it, it does have its flaws, and, uh, I, and I, I, so that means that, so that's why I think that the Elenium, the Elenium and the Tomoli are better. In the sense, he, he learnt he learnt all the mistakes from the first bunch, and corrected them for the for the Elenium and the Tomoli, which uh, which is which are a more a mature sort of novel. The, the Belgarian is very much young adult, um, and uh, the Tomoli and the Elenium are a lot more mature. They do they do a subject matter that, that you just couldn't have in the Belgarian, uh, like you know incest and and uh, you know various stuff like that, um, and uh, so so this uh, so the basic storyline is uh, like it's very it's again it's very much the hero's journey. It has all all the same sort of tropes. So it's um, uh, so it deals with uh, Sparhawk, who is a Pandian knight, and so there he's, he's essentially uh, Edding's version of um, the Templars. So you have a, a bunch of there's a bunch of countries around the world. And they all have their own sort of set of set of knights, and they're all they're sort of like warrior monks, um, and uh, so they're religious warriors. Uh, he's and he's part of the Pandian order, uh, and, and around that you've got the other ones, the, the Gendians and the, uh, the Gendians and the, um, the Alcyons and all that sort of stuff. Forget if, if my pronunciation is different to yours, I apologise, but this is how I do it. Um, and uh, anyway, so he's he's basically the champion of his order, and uh, he's he's just returned from uh, a long exile. Uh, to find that uh, the the queen of um, Alenia, who, funnily enough, her name is Al- Alana, <laughs> is, uh, is is in dire straits. Uh, I won't reveal too much, but basically, she, it's, it's what the Diamond Throne's all about. Just, just to quickly jump in there, that's one of the things I found a bit difficult in this book because a lot of the names that he's made up are very similar, especially this to a couple of characters who have very similar names and they're very similar characters. It's a bit tricky at the start. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> 
so um, so basically, so he's, he's come to find that he's and he's the queen's champion, and he's, she's in she's in trouble, and so he sets out to you know help her. Uh, that's that's the that's the dis- distillation this distillation of the plot in the absolute basis form. Um, it introduces a whole bunch of other knights, um, and uh, it has uh, some some political it focuses very much on political and uh, church uh, theological conflict, um, and and just like the hero's journey, it has an item, so they, they, he has to find a gem, a magical gem called the Ballium. Um, the Sapphire Rose, and uh, thwart the machinations of the evil god Azash. Uh, and so, you know, who's essentially the devil, really. It's, um, or Sauron. Yeah, or basically <laughs> Sauron, yes. <laughs> that's right, David Eddings hated Lord of the Rings. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that, like I said, that's very much, very much the plot. I mean, it's, it's, it's over three books. Uh, the sequel, The Tamale, then introduces uh, the, the continent on the other side of the world. And then essentially repeats the story. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to try and deny it. I mean, I'm not trying to defend it. It is the the Balorian is is pretty much the Belgarian all over again. The Tamuli is pretty much the Elenium all over again. But you know what? I don't care <laughs> because I love it so much that I'm happy to you know read more about these people. Uh, the Diamond Throne uh, is is a, a serviceable introduction to the world. I mean, it doesn't pick up until um, much sort of later into it. Uh, and then, strangely enough, uh, in book two, it starts off. It's, I mean, it starts off like the next sentence after *Die with Throne*, and but still, for some reason, then sort of, it it's not quite as interesting, and then uh, sort of picks up from there for the magnificence that it is. That it is book three, but dealing specifically with book one, what did you think, Crystal? Uh, it, it took me back to my youth, back into my uh, fantasy reading days, and I, I I had read *Lord of the Rings* first. Um, and then you intellectuals, intellectual. Well, I my introduction to Lord of the Rings was through you. I had read that first, and then I found um, David Eddings in the library. You know, and I, I actually read the last series first. I managed to find book one of a series, not realizing it was the last series. So I read that first, and then I read the first series. So I hadn't actually read the Elenium because by the time I finished reading the first series. So it was so similar to the last series. <laughs> and it actually, this is, David Eddings is what sort of turned me off fantasy because I, I got tired of having to read six books to get to the end of the story. Um, and and they're all, as you have said multiple times, very similar. You're going to hate Robert Jordan then. Probably <laughs> <laughs> not going to start I've, Robert Jordan. I've, I've not started on Robert Jordan. <laughs> um, I do hear the Wheel of Time series is very good, but I, I, haven't, I haven't got to that point yet where I can go back to reading six books. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it it's actually, no, it's like 12 books. Like, 15. Yeah, well, there you go, see? And it's, he, it's just Lord of the Rings. Did he not yeah. die before it finished? Yeah, he, he died before he finished and his son took over, I think. Or no, no, yeah. Brandon Sanderson took over. Oh, uh, see, one of the Jordans is involved as well. Might, might have been, but Brandon yeah. Sanderson is the, the name writer involved. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, getting back to the Diamond Throne, um, it was quite easy to slip back into the David Eddings mode of the story, uh, and, and I, I, it's an enjoyable read. Because it's the first book... Of a series, it's it's structured different to a, a standalone book. So I sort of kept waiting for plot twists and turns, but it's really just one calamity after another till I get to the end of the quest. Yeah. Um, there's not, not not many twists and turns in there. Everything sort of turns out the way you'd expect it would. Yeah. And I kind of guessed who the little girl was instantly. Uh, well, if you cause if you've read the Belgaria, then you can 
easily guess who she is. Especially just from the description. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and But it did, did seem odd to me that they didn't think it was odd that they found a, a barefoot little girl in, in pretty much snow conditions. When they first find her, they don't think it's all that odd. But when, the, the later and then when, on, she, when escapes she escapes the nunnery... The nunnery, it's like... Oh, yeah, okay, she escaped. Are you, are you half asleep? <laughs> What's going no, on? Unless she's put some sort of spell on them or something, I she don't know. She clearly teleported. Anyway... <laughs> All right, but I did find that, uh, that it did have some themes in there that kind of interest me. On the one hand, you've got the Queen's sister who's being banished to a nunnery because of her... It's prim- her aunt. Oh, sorry, I meant the um, the King's sister. Yeah. Yeah, who's <laughs> being banished to a nunnery because of her promiscuousness. Now, at this point, you don't know about her other misdealings. Yeah. But that's pretty much it. On the other hand, you've got um, Sparhawk Squire, which is... Kirk. Kirk. These are the names I got mixed up. Kirk and Carlton. Carlton. I keep getting them too mixed up because <laughs> they're very I knew, similar. I knew that's who it was. Yeah. Um, K- who is the father of an Ill- illegitimate son. And now I knew you were going to bring this that, up. That, that, all the characters are fine with this. Oh, yeah, it was just a little indiscretion. His part. It's okay. Is um, there one sense? There one sense. <laughs> yeah. These things happen. Well, these things happen. We're not going to tell his wife about it. And, and the boy gets treated horribly. He gets beaten, and that's fine as well. If the boy doesn't shut up and listen to his lessons, he gets beaten by knights from the church. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so th- there's a few things in there that I thought felt kind of questionable. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a bit It's a bit beyond. Yeah, having said that, I do like that um, Seferina is a strong female character. Yeah. Um, although she has to be all powerfully magic to, to be a strong female character. Otherwise, they're just... They're just women. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so, yeah, that was... Uh, I hate to think that's what, that's just what stood out at the book for me, but uh, that's I, I, it's not really the most standout part of the book for me, but that's just the part that I found sort of the most interesting, the disparity between the way women and men are treated in the book. <laughs> Having said that, I got to the end of the book and I sort of... Um, I've, no interest in reading the next book whatsoever. It, it's the same old Eddings over and over. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's Eddings on a loop. It's it's well, but like I mean, like I'm mean, like, like I said, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that's not true. I mean, it's, yeah. it, but it is it is it's a more mature Eddings style. Yeah. Um, so where he's so he's corrected some of the mistakes of the Belgariad, and there's quite yeah. a few. I can um, understand if you really love the characters the way you do uh, yeah. that it is fine to read the same thing over and over because you're enjoying it. It's fine. Yeah. But no, I, I I enjoyed it. It was a bit of fun, but. I'm not reading six books with it. <laughs> That's fair enough. He has some very well-known tropes. It's like quite often character, uh, different characters will repeat the same lines. Mm. Um, that's It can oh, be quite frustrating. I did have a favourite line. Um, yeah. Sparhawk uh, is talking about his face, and he goes, it covers the front of my head. What else can you expect from a face? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. He's not, he's not meant to be handsome. Uh, so, but, I mean... It's, Yes, yeah, so like I said, there's, there's, there's certain Eddings tropes that sort of continue on and don't really stop. Uh, but I don't care, because I love this book. I love the political intrigue. I love the, the church intrigue. I mean, it's quite clearly meant to be the Catholic Church. You it's very I mean? Warcraft, didn't It's very Warcraft. Uh, I've, got, <laughs> I, I've mentioned it many I've mentioned it many times on the show that, that uh, I've got uh, about 43 Warcraft characters, and I would say at least 25 of them are named after Eddings characters. So, I, I mean, it's, uh, there's just no shame in that. You know what I mean? I've got I've got a warrior called Anaka, which is ter- which is Sparhawk's nickname in the Malorian. Um, and when I was walking around the world one day as that character, someone actually said to me, 
yo, Sparhawk, <laughs> do you like to join us? You know, stuff like that. So it's just, you know, it's obviously it's it's well loved around the world as well. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I love this book uh, for for everything. It's it's faults in it at all. I don't care. I love it, and uh, I'm I'm rereading it. I've reread it again for the show. Uh, like I said, I'm straight back on this on the book two. I'll go to book three. I'll almost likely move on to the Tamale as well. I just want to be able to help myself. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it as sort of introductory fan. Read it for what it is. Read it for, as uh, a simplified version of the Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, for all those who find some parts of the Lord of the Rings, you know, un- unreadable, like myself, especially Legolas and his rubbish, uh, then, you know, <laughs> just read it for that. His poetry, man. Okay, his poetry is bad. He's got to get over that crap. But, you know, <laughs> the relationship, the friendship he has with Gimli, I think. Oh, it's great. The, original, the relationship is, 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 is absolutely great. Um, but, yeah, so just read it for all the, all the good things. The, the, the characters and the characterization are just are brilliant. Uh, so, by all means, check them out. That's The Diamond Throne by David and Lee Eddings. Just a quick note on that. Um, it actually just says David Eddings on the front. Uh, but... Why later later editions of the of the novel have got both David and Lee, um, and Lee actually helped David write these novels from the very beginning. It, right, and at the start, he, he basically wasn't allowed to acknowledge it. Like the book publishers wouldn't allow that. It's like we kind of have a female fantasy author, which is just bizarre when Anne you think McCaffrey. about it. I mean, Anne McCaffrey. I mean, it's like, like Le Guin. Yeah, look, look it's, anyway, it's, it's odd. Um, I, don't, I don't quite understand his reasoning, but. Um, so he, he basically they're just all Marion Marion Zimmer Bradley yeah so but all so but all now current editions of the novels all do old I say David and Lee Eddings that's the Diamond Throne David Eddings right. I'm torn I'm torn with my rating <laughs> it's because I want to give it 5 out of 5 because I love it's so beloved but I just I can't deny that there's flaws so I've, to be honest I, I have to go with 4.5 my heart says 5 my brain says 4.5 Having said that, however, about the female characters, and uh, I'm willing to believe that, that that's just the way that world works and sort of just, you know, get on with it. Having said that, I'm going to give this book a, a, a two. Divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you at least gave it a go. So there you go. Agree or disagree, please let us know on both of those books, Roadside Picnic and uh, A Diamond Throne, book one. Check them out if you've already read them. Uh, or you read them in preparation for the for the show, then uh, let us know. We'd love to hear your opinions, as we do at the end of our uh, Dust Jackets. So we'll announce the books for our next Dust Jacket episode, which will be in four episodes time. Uh, so, Richo, your pick? Uh, I am doing Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. I think it's well past time that we got to Vonnegut. And, uh, so there it is, Cat's Cradle, everybody. Cool. Uh, so and uh, since Luke will be unable to join us uh, for that uh, for that next Dust Jacket episode, uh, we're going to have a special guest. Our pop culture reporter Silhouette is going to be joining us, and she, as a special guest, she's going to pick the book, and that she's already chosen Homeland by R. A. Salvatore, uh, or Salvatore. Is it Salvatore or Salvatore? Let's go with Salvatore just because it sounds cool. It sounds cool. Sounds that's like, right. That's a I don't think he's Mexican or anything like that. When the sun hits the sky <laughs> like a big pizza pie, Salvatore. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's book book one of the the legend of Drizzt. Of what now? Drizzt. 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 Tissue. You know the the drow guy. We've forgotten Realms Drow dude that everybody loves. Not, Drizzt. Not really a fantasy person. So oh, that's right. Stop spitting all over the right. recording equipment. <laughs> anyway, so that's going to short out our microphone with all that. It's going to be a bit of fun. So uh, check cool. it out. 
Um, moving on to our top five, which is our top five 70s TV shows. So we're going to start off with Crystal. I found out that I'm such a 70s TV show fan. Not only did I have my top five, I started on a list of runners-up. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I had ten runners-up. Now, these are in no particular order because um, I just I just couldn't rate them. Yeah, um, But MASH has got to be in there. I know that crosses over into the 80s, but it started in the 70s, so we'll call it a 70s TV show. A lot of, um, a lot of the lists are looking at say it's a 70s show, so yeah, yeah. I would actually say that the good series were the 70s series and it got bad when it got to the 80s. Oh, I don't know. So I, I mean, When I was younger, I loved the early years with Colonel Blake and, and Frank Burns, and, and then as I got older, I, I learned to appreciate the Colonel Potter years. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Maybe this is, I mean, this, going back a couple of episodes, this should be something we should show to aliens as well, because it teaches you about uh, humanity and the way people react to the horrors of war. And it's probably one of the first shows on TV that really did that. And war was always glamorised. Mm. And this show showed you that war is just not war fun and games. not good. Mm. It does terrible things to people. Yeah. On the flip side, my next show on my list is Happy Days. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's one of my all-time childhood favourites. Now, I know this is not the greatest show in the world, but I just love the characters. The Fonz, Richie, Ralph, Mouth, Plotsy, Joni, Charty in later years. And now I'm talking about it before it jumps the shark. And this is the show that brought about that phrase for people who don't know. There was an episode where the ratings were flagging, so they, they went on a trip, as all show all good shows do. If the ratings are flagging, they go on a trip. Yeah. And Fonzie is water skiing in his trademark leather jacket. Yeah. And ski jumps over a shark. And that's when the series went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> so now you all know where the phrase jump the shark came from. Uh, NCP were informative. Uh, informative mm. and entertaining. <laughs> um, next on my list is Hogan's Heroes. Nice. Now I was going to... Almost going to put the Muppet Show in there, but um, I f- there's two reasons I didn't. One because we've talked about it before, and two because I know it's going to be on somebody else's list. Well, um, so, number one on my list. <laughs> so I put Hogan's Heroes in there. Hogan's Heroes, unlike Mash, didn't really show the horrors of war, but it it, it was hilariously funny. Yeah. And uh, I just love the ingenious ways that they always got away with their little capers. <laughs> No, the difference between this and that and Mash though is that um, the Korean War was the war that no one talked about. Yeah. Um, it so wasn't it, a war; it was a police action. Mm, mm. It it was all about you know, so it, touched, it so they had to be careful, they had to be sensitive to yeah. what was actually going. Also, you know they've just come off Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. Hogan's Heroes though, 
set in World, World War II. World and War II, <laughs> World War II POW camp. Yeah. And the Nazis were the villains. And World War II has always been right a war there. that's glamorized. Yeah. Been glamorized. Um, but yeah, it's just, again, great characters. Uh, uh, Colonel Clink, Schultz, Hogan. Yeah, they're. Who's uh, a weird dude, the guy that played Hogan? Bob Crane. Bob Crane. Was a weird dude. I always thought. But, Paul you know, let to Greg Kinnear uh, turning in one of his finest performances. Yeah. I always thought um, Paul McDermott from the Doug Anthony All Stars looked like Bob Crane. Yeah. Yeah, no, we were, I remember saying that at the time. Yeah. We were doing Hogan's Heroes reruns as Good Newsweek was playing. Think, <laughs> Hang on, he looks like. Bob Crane. <laughs> um. Next on my list is Get Smart, and we've talked about that in previous episodes before, but I had to, I had to throw it in there because it's one of my all-time favourites. It's a childhood classic for me, you know, sitting down on the weekend watching, rainy weekend watching Get Smart, repeating all the lines as they're saying it. Great stuff. And then Mork and Mindy. Now, as I said, this is no particular order because Mork and Mindy is as high as MASH, in, in my opinion. Mork and Mindy, um, such a family favourite in our household, well, in our family, that there were actually a pair of cats named Mork and Mindy. It's probably the first really quirky show I ever saw as a child, and, uh, and Robin Williams' character Mork just blew my mind when I was a little kid, and I always wanted a pair of rainbow braces. I never actually got a pair. He didn't look awesome. <laughs> he looked stylish. Um, I wasn't such a big fan when um, they had the child. I think I might appreciate that now. I'm older more. But I thought that sort of spoiled the dynamic. But it's a, it's a great show, Mocha Mindy. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. Very briefly, my runners-up. Uh, Muppet Show, Good Times, Daniel Mad. <laughs> Different strokes, Barney Miller. Which I've actually written Blarney Miller. I know, I corrected it for both. <laughs> I've just realised. That's the Irish version. The Irish version. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, cool. Uh, next up is Luke. Um, now, unlike the three members of the troupe here, um, I'm actually not a child of the 70s. So I don't, ha- I don't have quite have the uh, rose-tinted nostalgia when it comes to some of this stuff. So a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is stuff that I've actually had to... Some stuff watched during the childhood but some stuff discovered uh, much later on. I don't believe your glasses are ever rose-tinted. No, they're not, but <laughs> even more so on this occasion. Um, well said. So things like, just like, things like MASH aren't going to be on my list. Mm. Like the show dearly, um, mm. and can un- and understand and appreciate the, the high ranking that people place it, um, but it wasn't a constant part of my part of my upbringing my childhood and even now you know mm. I might catch an occasional episode but it wasn't it's never something that I've gone I must sit down and watch mm. this one was a bit hard for me but I have got some stuff um, my number five and I have gone from five to one my number five is Kolchak the Night Stalker cool as cheesy as it is today um, this was the forerunner to things like the X-Files and you know you did get people Darren, first of all Darren McGavin um, you know was a wonderfully acerbic yet still quite charming and charismatic and quite vulnerable um, as um, the investigative journalist um, Kolchak. I always liked Darren McGovern. Um, plus also, you know, some of Richard Matheson's finest writing. I think a much underrated writer and should actually be held up in, in as high regard as, say, Ray, Bra- Ray Bradbury. But, um, so yeah, so Kolchak is number five. Number four is The Muppets. Now, I was actually scraping the bottom that I was trying to find a show to actually put it into this, and until it was reminded me recently, I decided to put in The Muppets, and I should be kicking myself because I actually started rewatching season one of The Muppets a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, like I said, I'm not going to talk about it too much because it's been talked about before, and I know um, 
Dave's going to be talking about it later on, so I'll let him go on about it. But, um, yeah, you don't get better than um, Jim Henson's workshop in terms of puppetry. Um, and The Muppets is his is the best thing they ever did. Um, number three is one of the, the one of the one of the other shows here that I did watch as a kid endlessly, which is Faulty Towers. Um, again, we've talked about it um, a lot, particularly on our Best of British, but it is one that is universal. It it is it still cracks me up to this day. Um, there are only twelve episodes, but they are twelve magnificent episodes, and it is outside of Monty Python, John Cleese's finest moment. Number four, number number two, and number one. I will talk about it more. Number two, Doctor Who. This, you know, cool. do, the 70s is Doctor Who, is, you know, the um, watershed for Doctor Who. You start off with John Pertwee finishing off his, you know, his action-oriented James Bond in space type, um, type shtick. And then you get into what I, what is arguably the finest period in Doctor Who, which is the Tom Baker run. You know, not just, you know, some good, run after run of good stories, but run after run of excellent stories. You know, hard to, hard Genesis, to argue with it. Genesis of the Daleks to Revenge of the Cybermen to Terror of the Zygons, and then later on you get tons of Wang Chiang. You you get um, some of the most inventive um, villains in things like the Zygons. You get the best companions in thing in um, companions like Leela and uh, both Romanas one and two. Peter Davison is a good Doctor, but the show never really recovers after Tom Baker leaves. It doesn't really at the high level that guys like Robert Holmes and Peter Hinchcliffe set um, is never really matched even with New Who. It, everyone can rave about Blink all they want. It's got nothing on Genesis of the Daleks. Um, so Doctor Who is my number two. My number one, and this gets back to... This is get, coming on nicely from Genesis. Genesis was written by... Of the Daleks was written by Terry Nation. And my number one 70s show is um, his finest thing outside of Doctor Who, which is Blake Seven. It was the, when you when you said the seventies. It was the first thing I thought of. Yeah. yeah. So um, there, I don't think there was a show at the time that really captured the sort of uh, antipathy and pessimism of the seventies the way that Blake Seven did. Our heroes are not, you know, um, brightly clad uh, do-gooders. Mm. They are they are out to you know improve the universe a little bit, um, but they're not. You they're know, make it better for them. They're making it better for <laughs> making it better for them. I, Rog Blake is trying to um, actually make the universe a, be, a, a, a better around a place and at least a more um, balanced place. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, he is a, he is a criminal actually attempting <laughs> to fight against the system. But really, let's face it, the the um, the great joy, of this the one true creation from this that actually made the show work, is Paul Darrow as Kurt Avon. Yeah. You know, up until this point, the uh, the outside, the um, the sidekicks or the offsiders were, you know, intelligent but admirable and only there really to support the um, the star. Avon becomes the main character even before Blake leaves. Yeah. Um, he is funny. He is actually constantly doing stuff. But yeah, without without him, eventually Blake Seven would have lasted two series and then that's it. Cool. If that would have myself. I'm going to go from uh, no particular order, same with Crystal. Uh, just, these are all the ones that sort of popped into my head. I mean, if I was doing any particular order, it would be The Muppet Show at number one. Uh, it's just unbelievably good. Uh, it's all the reasons that uh, that young Luke already said. Uh, but uh, just, I mean, this the celebrity cameos, you know, the interactions. It was just, it was celebrities interacting with puppets, of mm. all things, but in a sort of an adult sort of way, mm. and uh, I was, you know, I was fairly young when I saw it for the first time, and so I got, I got to see, you know, these mysterious celebrities who I just thought, I thought were all, you know, sort of arrogant, sort of, you know, look at me, look at me, sort of stuff, which is what celebrities are. Let's be, let's be honest. And the, those yeah. people that they did get yeah. on are actually like that. Yeah, yeah, 
who then you know interacted the way they did with with puppets Which made the puppets and, seem more real i mean you exactly made exactly and uh, one of my favorite episodes of all time is john cleese who let's face it is a bit of a bastard and to have him interact the way he did where it, the butt of the joke mm. you know what i mean and it's just i just thought it was just absolutely magnificent but you know he was actually engaged in writing some of the stuff for the show anyway yeah, yeah, so he's, it's he's, not like he went oh I'm just doing this he actually wanted to no, no. that had to be hard to shoot too with somebody of his size yeah he's pretty angry it's Kurt I am your guest it's brain stuff um, it, it just and you know, all the other celebrity stuff you know the, the, the crossover with Star Wars the, 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 the stuff and, you know basically just everything that it was and, and uh, Kermit mm. is absolutely real. and it, which you know, then evolved into the Muppet movie which is one of my favourite movies of all time so it's the <laughs> idea, brilliant, brilliant stuff. So, uh, so like I said, no particular order. Good times. <laughs> to add that as well. <laughs> so the good times for me was was interesting because it was uh, a TV family that didn't act the way that most you know TV families of the time or the times before it did. They were, I mean, they were all African American. It's probably the first um, African American family I saw on TV. Yeah, probably. Does um, it beat the Jeffersons? So I, I didn't really watch Sanford and Son. Oh, I didn't watch any of those. And see the Jeffersons. Stanford, that was a step down with some yeah. remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was it? Oh, yeah. yeah. So that, that, I always, always wondered about that. <laughs> so yeah, that's being confirmed for me. Um, so yeah, so so good times for me was was my sort of my first introduction to African American culture, mm. and uh, and I was just fascinated. And uh, I mean, these just the love that they had for each other in the times that they had. I mean, it was dramatic mm. as well as comedic. But of course, you had the dynamite guy. Which yeah, gives birth to Steve Urkel later yeah, on. The son. And, and, you know, and, and his wacky antics and you know, how ridiculously thin he was. I mean, he was so tall and thin. And, uh, but but just, just the love that family had, had for each other and that they would do... They would, there, was, there was nothing that they wouldn't do for anybody. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was really, really cool. Um, and, but I didn't have that growing up. You know what I mean? So it was, it was, it was quite important to me. Uh, Wonder Woman. Because Linda Carter was... Gorgeous, Ooh, and because uh, the show was cool, uh, it got pretty bad towards the end there. But uh, Wonder Woman, awesome, you know, and a powerful female figure. Uh, Mash, of course, let's be honest, it has to be on there. Um, it's I've seen every single episode multiple, multiple times because it's shown every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like every day there's a Mash. You can find a Mash episode. There's been very um, few years where there weren't Mash reruns. Running. Yeah, very few. I do prefer the original, the the first. Five or so seasons, um, uh, the, you know. Well, I don't mind the early potty years. I basically up until the point where Alan Alder takes control of the show is basically, I think, the goal. Because I like the Alan Alder. Episodes. Yeah, I mean, I love Alan Alan Alder. Don't get me wrong, massive talent, and uh, I love him a lot. But uh, I just think towards the end there, it kind of basically overstayed its welcome a bit. Um, but uh, radar didn't, didn't quite jump the shark. No, no, it never yeah. jumped the shark. But radar is one of my most, most beloved television characters. Mm. He's, yeah, he's brilliant. Um, so much so that I got annoyed. I actually watched the episode just recently, the episode where he leaves, and he didn't get the send off that I that my heart demanded he must have. <laughs> it's just like, what's going on? This is radar. So yeah, anyway. Uh, another one, another fa- uh, favorite of mine was Columbo, of course, mainly because of co- uh, the character of Columbo. Um, just a, a Peter Falk is brilliant. Peter Falk, uh, the epitome of the TV detective for me, and, and uh, we've talked about it before. So, won't talk about so much. Uh, another another favorite of mine was uh, Quincy M. E. Oh yeah, I love Quincy. Uh, mainly because the main character, uh, Doctor Quincy himself, he was basically a crime-solving doctor. He was actually a medical doctor. I think he was a forensic forensic doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah, forensics. And um, 
But the one thing that got me the most about this show was the opening credits. Because he was a bit of... He, they tried to portray him as a bit of a, a playboy. And... It's Jack Klugman. It's Jack Klugman, for crying out loud. I mean, this is the most unplayboy playboy you're going to get. Maybe in his earlier years, but not in his Quincy days. And the opening credits is actually him... Well, it looks like he's investigating a body for, like, marks, like needle marks or something. He's, like, investigating a corpse. But then the camera pulls back, and it's him on his boat. <laughs> he's on a yacht, and he's got some bikini, you know, bikini-clad babe. And he's, like, you know, filling her up, essentially, being a dirty old man. And it just, that, I don't know why that struck me so much. I was like, I must watch this show. <laughs> and I did, really just. I don't remember that at all. It was just it was bizarre. I had a few things <laughs> on, too. Anyway, I don't know what it was. Uh, the Rockwood Files, of awesome. course, we've mentioned it before. Awesome stuff. And, you know, I had to rush home in order to watch that show. Brilliant stuff. This is more than five. I've gone over five. I've gone into my runners up. So just very, very quickly Kolchak, the Night Gallery. Which was uh, Rod Serling. Yeah, Rod Serling's Return to TV, uh, Super Friends, and uh, '70s Doctor Who, of course. So uh, yeah, the '70s man. As researching this, I just saw it's like so much of my television experience is from the '70s. Well, I think during the '80s too, a lot of '70s TV shows just got rerun because back in the '80s, this was back before the days of fast track from the US. <laughs> All I had was old reruns to play over and over again, and yeah, that's, yeah. that's 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 well in Australia it, certainly yeah. yeah yeah. But um, you know, the '80s also gave us Hill Street Blues. Thankfully, yes. Yeah. Oh, what an awesome show um, that was! I saw a very young David Caruso in there once. Yes. Yeah. He's in the first couple of episodes. Yeah. Awesome. So let's. Uh, that was that was a fun top five. I enjoyed that. We'll have to do the eighties at some point. Yeah. Have we done the eighties? No. No. Only done the sixties or the fifties for that matter. I've got them all listed. I've got like a document of all my top five ideas. I wrote it the other night. It's two pages of top five topics. We're gonna get. We're gonna do. We're gonna do them all. <laughs> Uh, so let's finish up the show with Coming Soon. Uh, in Australian cinema, September 4th, we get What We Do in the Shadows, which is uh, Jermaine Clement's return to film comedy. Oh, it's well, we've seen a, that then. It's, about a mock- it's a mockumentary about vampires. I'll um, be seeing that. End. Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi. I'm a fan of both, so... Yeah, yeah it's awesome. good. And the Green Inferno, which is a horror film about a sort of accountable tribe, and it's basically Eli Roth's, you know, tribute to sort of cannibal movies. Well, you just had to do was say, was say, you know, avoid this film. Yeah. Eli, the next one that's coming out is by Eli Roth to avoid. Yeah, it doesn't look very interesting at all. Well, it's um, horror movie. Make me avoid this film. Uh, anyway, I think we're, I think we're, as a culture we're past that sort of that sort of time. But anyway, uh, Into the Storm about mm. uh, storm chasers. Mm, no. Not interested. Uh, boyhood. We've got cows. This is about boyhood. <laughs> and A Promise. So that's... Does uh, it break it? I, I have to assume that The Promise is broken at some point in that film. Spoiler alert. <laughs> There'll be a pro- broken promise. We'll be watching a film, no drama otherwise. Well, we kept our promise. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't, I've now wasted two hours of my life, so... <laughs> Be we don't know. Hero's duty demands that the promise be broken. <laughs> anyway, so that's uh, episode 107, the 107th episode of NCP, the greatest podcast in the world. Thanks it from me and the crew. Richard. Well, I have nothing interesting to say now at the end of this episode, so goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Fair Luke. I don't know if you can call it the greatest podcast in the world. It's my podcast, so I'm saying that's what it is. And you're on it, so you should you should say that too. <laughs> but now that I think about it, <laughs> okay, we'll go with second grade. <laughs> and Crystal, 
Dynamite! <laughs> Bye! Bye! You've been listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You can run on our wall if you go to the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Tweet us at nerdculturecast. Skype us on Nerd Culture Podcast. If we don't answer, leave a message. We might even play it on the show. You can comment on any post on our website www.nerdculturepodcast.com If you'd like to support the show, use the Amazon affiliate widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, and a small percentage of the profit goes towards helping us to produce our show. We can see what you buy, but not who you are, so your privacy is assured. Check out our videos at ncptv.net, or search for NCPTV on YouTube, because we also have a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Wondering where you can hear more of Bo? Go to ecnradio.com. Bo and David also have another podcast called Film Flames. More info at www.filmflames.com. You can find all of our podcasts and more at undercastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.